The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, everyone. The scripture this morning is found in Luke 2, 25 through 32, 39 through 40, and 46 through 52. If you have one of the Bibles under the chair, it can be found on page 857. You can also follow along on the screen. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he had not that he would not see death before he had seen the, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. After three days, they found in him, found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at the, his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. You may be seated. Morning. Uh, let me open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. Um, we pray that uh, you'd open our hearts, our minds, our ears to uh, receive from you the things you have for us this morning. We thank you for uh, just those who are here, those who have... Um, who have struggled to get here. Lord, I pray that they would find rest, that they would find relief, they would find peace, they would find security, that they would find hope, that they would find uh, only the things that you can give to their hearts. I thank you again for your word and for this time and this privilege to teach. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a little overview of what we're doing um, with the passage. I broke it down into two sections. Um, Luke 2, 22 through 40 um, is the uh, passage of his um, dedication and the purification of Mary. And it's, I've captioned it basically Christ confirmed because there's a lot of information in there that points to who he is. 
being validated by outside or other people. So verses 20 through 40 is Christ confirmed, and that's really as redeemer. And 41 through 52, Christ confounds, um, and that's both the teachers and his parents, as we just read a little bit in, about that. So um, let's, let's go. Um, have you ever known someone, person you come in contact with, and they might be close to you, but you, but you spend time, months, likelihood years, and one day you wake up and they say something and you get the feeling you know nothing about them? Um, I'll give you an illustration. My wife and I, after a decade plus of marriage, we go to a marriage conference, and they give us this um, questionnaire. And the questionnaire was basically, answer it as if you were answering for your spouse. So you're basically being asked to say, how well do you really know how they would respond to these questions? So we dutifully fill out the page or two. Kate's laughing now because it, it's hysterical what happens. So we get some downtime, and we go and read it back to each other. That was part of the assignment. And we, have, we laughed so hard because we were clueless. We were clueless. On an evening, on a Friday night, what would you like to do? And she fills in like, I'd like to do something. I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's what you like to do. You know, and it was just question after question after question where you thought, I, I just don't have a clue. And so, so the point really that I make here is that you can know some people. But the question really becomes, how well? I had served in a ministry years ago with, with a guy, I'm not going to give you his last name, Pete. Um, but I guess six, eight years I served with him. I knew, I, soft-spoken retired teacher from New Jersey. Um, served literally um, twice a week for 30 weeks a year for six or eight years. I knew I could tell you all about his wife, about his kids, about his grandkids, about his salvation experience, about all the things he's done for work, the people who brought the Lord to him. And so one day we're sitting there talking and he raises his arm up like this. And I look at his arm and it looks like somebody tried to hack it off just above the elbow. And I'm like, dude, what's up with your arm? He goes, oh, I was shot. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. This shot? He goes, yeah, I was in Vietnam. And he goes, I was, I guess, a, I don't know the right term, but the leader of like a little ragtag group of men. And he said, he goes, you know, I wasn't actually supposed to be doing what I was doing because I was walking out on point, which is the guy who gets shot first, understandably so now, or ambushed. And as the captain or the platoon leader, you would put somebody else out there because you've got the responsibility for the group of the men. He said, but I would never put my men somewhere I wouldn't go. And I was walking down a rice path, and, and I was shot right up. I was holding my, my gun on my shoulder, and it came through the front of my arm and out the back. And it was an AK-47, and it ripped his arm to shreds. He calls it the million-dollar wound. He realized as soon as he was shot, he goes, I'm going home. You know, it's pretty funny, but you know how you know these people, but do you really know them? My spiritual mentor, and I've got two, by the way, some of us need more than one, um, is a guy named Jerry, old. He's, he's got to be in mid-80s at this point. Um, but he's been in my life for the last 15 years. And last summer, he became really sick. Um, literally, I left the hospital. Last summer was crazy for me. My mother-in-law passed away. My mom fell, broke her hip, spent, I don't know, two months in the hospital and rehab facility. And Jerry broke his femur in the end of May. And I probably clocked, I can't, 60, 70 days in the hospital. I was rotating days back and forth. And so I'm in the hospital one time with Jerry. 
And, um, you know, you find yourself spoon-feeding somebody you love with uh, spoon-feeding them milkshakes. You know, and things just start to slow down when you're there with people like that. And as we're, as we're just sitting there spending time, he starts reminiscing and he says, he goes, you know, I should have died a long time ago. And Jerry, like myself, is what I would call the prodigal. You know, the, the people who just went and, went and blew it out. He tells me this story, and this wasn't the story he told me at the time, but he has told this story before that he, he had nearly died from alcoholism. And he was in the hospital, and a Catholic a priest was giving him his last rites. And Jerry's able to utter, but I'm Methodist. And the priest responds, where you're going, it won't matter. Okay, that, that tells you about where he was in his life at that time. And so Jerry starts saying this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And he goes, no. He says, you know, back in 1980, I was in Las Vegas. And I'm in a hotel room with my wife watching TV. And the news broadcast comes on with this horrible high-rise hotel fire. And as they're watching the show, Jerry looks at his wife, Emma, and says, Emma, that looks a lot like the building we are in. He was 17 floors up. It was the MGM Grand Hotel fire that occurred November 21st, 1980. Uh, it, it was the worst modern disaster in Nevada's history. 87 people died from smoke ventilation. And he said the firemen came and grabbed them and led them through halls with towels over their face and down 17 flights of stairs they went. And so you, you hear these things and you start to realize you see more of who they are. It's often that you see that, though, in people, sometimes in negative circumstances, where life gets really hard. And all of a sudden, the wind starts blowing, and then you start to see who the people are who are around you. So this passage, as I started breaking it down, I started thinking about this, that, that if you could imagine sitting around a dinner table with Mary or Joseph, as they start recounting these events of the childhood of Christ, what would be our takeaway? What would we learn? What would we pick up with regard to who the person of Jesus Christ is? What would such events reveal him to be? So just, th that's where I want to take us this morning. So we're going to pick up Luke 20, uh, chapter 2, verses 22. Um, I want to give you my aim. I want to tell you the, the takeaway this morning would be um, for us to understand that Jesus Christ was both man and God. Be that sounds almost, if you're sitting here in church and you attend church on a regular basis, you say, oh, I know that. But do you get the fullness, the enormity, the scope of what that really means? And the, and the only way, again, that we see the fullness of who the person of Christ is, is through spending time in his word. So, although my aim may be that we would understand the fullness of who Christ is as both man and God, my goal would be to emphasize the need for us to set, spend time soaking daily in God's word. Whether you're putting on a podcast, whether you've got a devotional quiet time, whether you're in a Bible study, whether you have some other discipline. And here's why. The strength that we possess comes through the power of the Holy Spirit that's directly correlated to knowing his word. When Christ was in the desert in the 40 days of fast, fasting and tempting, which we're going to come up on relatively soon, when, when Satan attacked him, what did he use? 
to defend himself. It was the word of God. If we don't know the word of God, the best we will ever become as a Christian is an anemic Christian. A defenseless, malnourished, ill-equipped, illiterate believer. And we have them. That, that's what concerns me when I stand up here in front of a church. Is that the, these people fill the landscape of the modern American Protestant churches. And that's horrifying. Not only do we need it to defend ourselves as Christians, but we need to know a doctrine. We need to, when somebody says, what do you believe? You know, what is the doctrine you stand on? What is the truth? And again, the truth and the core of Christianity is that Christ was both man and God. And if you miss that, the world is going to tell you he's a prophet. He's a good man. To which we should respond, that's heresy. That's, and that's strong language. But the problem is, is the word of God is strong language. I'm sorry. Don't, don't stone me this morning. You want to throw some rocks at me. It's the book. It's exclusive. It's stern. But it's clear. So to know doctrine enables us to profess ac accurately what we believe and who the person of Christ is. And that really plays this morning. And the third thing is that knowing the word of God will equip us as to how we should behave and live as Christians. You know, I love some things about people in Doxa because I see, uh, I see an emphasis on, on family, on marriage, on community, on, community, uh, on prayerfulness. Th those are things that flow directly from God's word. And if we don't know his word, how, how do we establish priorities truly in life? If I don't know God, let me put it this way. If I don't know God's word, I'm not going to say it's not impossible or possible. But it becomes hard to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When I don't have a clue about what his word says and about how I should be behaving. In those situations, I have a shadowy or a vague sense that this doesn't really seem right. But if you know the word of God, whew, I'm stepping on his toes by acting in this way or believing this thing or professing this act or establishing the priorities I have in my walk with the Lord. So, knowing who Christ is, both man and God, hinges upon knowing the word of God. So, we pick up Luke 2. Uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 22 through 24, and it says this. And when they came for the time of purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacri a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So a couple, you read this passage and it actually sounds like one thing is going on, but there are actually two things that are going on. There's a dedication of the firstborn, which is a biblical mandate that you, according to the Exodus and Leviticus, you would bring him before the church and dedicate him. He would be set apart for specific things. Um, as the firstborn, he would assume the role of the head of the household and, the, and, and that Household priestly function if the father were incapacitated in any manner. Things such as that would come into play. The second thing though, and it's more where we spend the time here, is the purification of Mary. So let me break a little bit of this down. According to Leviticus 12, 1 through 8, it requires that a woman who gives birth, that she would remain unclean for 40 days. Now get this ladies, 80 for ladies. So if you give birth to a daughter, you're unclean for 80 days, 40 days for a male. 
And on the 40th day, you would take the boy or the girl on the 80th day. You'd be required to go to the priest, meet at the doorway of the tent of meeting, um, and then present um, a sacrifice. And it's interesting because it requires a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for the sin offering to make atonement for her. Um, and she, she would be cleansed, allow her to go back into the sanctuary, things like that. If she was poor, there was a provision for two turtle doves or two young uh, pigeons um, for the burnt and sin offering. So it's interesting that what we read here is that they're, they're obeying and adhering to this legal requirement. You know, when you read God's word, sometimes you kind of step back. And I think it's interesting. What came to me in this is that, you know, there's almost nowhere in scripture I can ever find a loophole in the sacrificial system where if you're dirt poor, you don't have to do anything. And the significance of that is that no one's exempted from the responsibilities of the faith they profess. Whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Every person plays a role, serves a function, and has a responsibility within the body of Christ. So there's a reference here to the custom of the law. Um, and, and this is um, important here. And I, I listened to, I wasn't here for Randy's podcast on, or excuse me, for his actual teaching. So I went back to the podcast. And I want to do a little backdrop that he didn't address. Maybe I hope you didn't do it in the second week. And by the way, did you guys wish Randy and Megan a happy anniversary? How many years? 17. Now, Megan said it's 17, but she's been happily married four years, but won't tell Randy which four to kind of keep him on his toes. Right, Megan? Congratulations. And that's part of why he's teaching, so he get a little more time um, with the bride of his youth. So congratulations. That's a, that's a good thing. So I listened to Randy's podcast, and he broke a little bit down concerning the disparities between the Gospels. But I want to back up again, because... Luke puts us on notice for certain things, and it's dead in alignment with where we are as a, what, what the Old Testament would classify, not even the old, the new, would classify as a Gentile church. Um, we don't have any traditional or Orthodox Jews here, so all of the rites, the rituals, the traditions, the practices, when we read God's word, we don't have a clue of the significance of what some of these references are to. So with that, let me do just a quick breakdown. Gospel of Mark is the closest to Luke because it was written in Greek for a Gentile audience. And there's a big issue there. When, when you hear that a book was written um, to a Gentile audience, it's interesting the arguments that have gone over because it appears John Mark wrote it, who was on the first missionary journey with Paul and then Peter, but it appears that Peter probably filled his ear with everything that was written, although there's a lot of dispute today as to who wrote the book. Um, it's, it's, a, it's what they call one of the action gospels that really reveal the actions of Christ that he took during the course of his ministry. The book of John, and Randy mentioned this, is the wingnut of the of four gospels because it's um, what did you say? It's the CBC, NBC, and ABC. That's the, the, the Mark, Luke, and um, Matthew Gospels. And then John would be the equivalent of the BBC, which is a good illustration. Um, it is completely separate and apart in how it presents Christ. And really the bottom line with the book of John is that it pre presents Christ as God incarnate. Again, it, it, it's written toward, generally speaking, a Jewish audience, and it emphasizes the divine nature of, of Christ. 
Matthew, written by a Jewish tax collector, Matthew is really a continuation of the Old Testament law. There's very little grace in the book of Matthew. And I've heard people say, oh, start out reading your Bible with Matthew. And I go, I, I'm like, that's, I don't want to say it's crazy, but I would not do it. I would put you in Luke or Mark in terms of just introducing you to Christ and, and who, what the, the revelation of the significance of Christ is. Um, Matthew is a continuation of the Old Testament law with Christ ushering it in. Um, it presents Christ as the king of the Jews. So you see themes like it is written, it is fulfilled, on and on and on again. Um, you go to Sermon on the Mount, there's no grace there. You know, if your arm causes you to sin, what do they do? Repent and go to Jesus, everything's cool? No, they say chop it off. Your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Gouge it out. Somebody says, go with me a mile. Where do you? It's works, it's a continuation of the works-based theology with the hope that you would realize I'm doomed under this system. Which would, which would prompt us to go to the Father seeking grace, not law. And it culminates in that with his death and crucifixion and resurrection. Um, but it's, it's a separate book. So you have Luke come in, written by a Gentile medical doctor, Theopolis. And, and the gist of it was basically to give um, a non-Jew an overview of, of the life and ministry and person and significance of Christ. So when you see in, in Luke, as was the custom, they don't, these events, the purification and, and the circumcision and the um, uh, dedication as the firstborn is nowhere in Matthew, Mark, uh, in Matthew, Mark, or John. They're assuming primarily in John and Matthew, if you're a Jew, you knew the kid was circumcised on the eighth day. You knew if he was the firstborn, he was dedicated. You knew Mary would have to be purified. Why waste the time? But as the book being written to Gentiles, again with us, it gives us a heads up that there's importance and significance in what the Old Testament says with regard to the coming and the fulfillment of the person of Christ. So having said that, we pick up Luke Chapter 2, 25 through 32. Um, it says, Then there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple and his parents. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So really interesting stuff on Simeon. The, the annals of the Jewish scribes say that he was the son of Hillel and the father of a man by the name of Gamaliel. Anyone know who Gamaliel was? Gamaliel was, was the Pharisee that the Apostle Paul was taught under. If I got the right Gamaliel, that is. And I did, I, when I saw the name, I should have double-checked that so somebody could do that. But if it's that Gamaliel, it, it's a Pharisee who was a letter-of-the-law guy. It probably is the same one, but again, I, I didn't double-check that as I stand here using his name. Um, Simeon became the chief priest of the Sanhedrin in A.D. 13. Um, so that's the general 
information. Now, again, you're talking 2,000 years old. Historically, people will argue about these things. What's interesting now, the Mishnah, which is a great collection of the expositions of the law by leading rabbis, keeps a, a, a log of these head Pharisees or of the people in Sanhedrin. They pass over Simeon's name altogether, which suggests this. They may have done it intentionally because he, he acknowledged um, Christ from Nazareth as the Messiah, which was outright rejected by the ruling religious masses of his day. So if you had one of these chief priests acknowledge who Christ was, their historical annals would want to mitigate anyone making that kind of, um, posi- taking that type of position uh, with regard to who Christ was. So the custom of the law, again, I've just mentioned that, that every firstborn would be dedicated, and again, with those privileges. Another privilege of the firstborn, I like this, double inheritance. I'm not a firstborn, by the way, so I'm glad I don't live according to Hebrew times. So as Simeon uses these words to express to his audience who he believes Christ is, for my eyes have seen your salvation, is this a statement that would be indicative of a man or of God? What do we pull away from a statement that says, for my eyes have seen your salvation? The salvation denoting that he saw in this infant child the means of deliverance for the world. Simeon quotes part of Isaiah 42, 6 through 7. And again, and all the Jews would have known when you hear these tag quotes, they would have immediately been drawn back to these messianic prophecies, the majority of which come from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 42, 6 through 7 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for a people and a light for the Gentiles. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament how often the prophecy about this coming Messiah would not only provide a way of salvation for the Jews, but as well for the Gentiles. This salvation was for the world. It came through the Jews. It had a Jewish history, and it had a Jewish impact. But its influence, its significance, was for the people of the world. To open the eyes that are blind. Another one of the interesting prophecies about the life of Christ is that all the Old Testament prophets, um, none of them had this gift to take a blind person and make them see. It was the hallmark of the prophesied Messiah that he would give sight to the blind. And we'll get to some of the miracles later on. But it's that catch miracle where if this guy restores the sight to the blind, you should have a heads up that this is probably the Messiah. To open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison. Boy, talk about us, what we've received today. To release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Same wording is used in Isaiah 49, 6. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. They would have known reading this. Now, as a Gentile reading that, a light to the Gentiles, we wouldn't have a clue what he's talking about. But if you were a Jew who was raised, where you ate, drank, and slept, and fed on the Old Testament scriptures, you would have known exactly what was going on here. It's interesting how Luke also describes Simeon. Four things about this man. He was righteous, meaning that the ethic for living was consistent with his behavior or actions, that he was devout. Devout simply implies that the man is, is a man who takes his faith seriously. 
waiting for the consolation of, of Israel. Meaning that there would be something that would happen to this nation collectively that it would console them, that it would soothe them, that it would give them relief. It would be a respite from the present existence of the state of turmoil that overshadowed the whole nation. That is the significance of the coming of their Messiah. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Meaning that he had, had yielded his life to God in a manner that he was controlled by the power of God's spirit. Do we, do we strive? Do we meet? Do we look to setting standards for us as believers according to these standards? Do our actions tell us when we say that? And we're not perfect. But do we have actions that confirm our belief system as it did with Simeon? Do we take our faith seriously? Are we devout? Are we consistent with tithing, with worship, with participation within the body of Christ, with our prayer life? Um, are those disciplines that we don't compromise? That's what it means simply to be. It, they didn't say devout and dogmatic. They said simply devout. It means we don't compromise in the core issues which we hold true in our walk with the Lord. And as a result of that is the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit's hands and fingerprints, his presence, something we can identify as we live and walk and breathe in our lives as believers. Just thought it was really, it's interesting the people that God reveals himself to. And how he uses people. And then you see consistent hallmarks with people that avail themselves to be of use to the Lord. Verses 33 through 35. And his father and mother marveled at what, they, what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, not to Joseph. This is really interesting. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many of Israel. Now that, would have, that, would, that should have left your stomach starting to churn quickly. To say that this is a person that, that is not going to sit in a quiet, happy, peaceful little location. This is a guy that's going to turn things on their head. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be from the common man to the throne of kings. Behold, this child is appointed to the fall and rising of many of Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And, and that, those are words that as a mother... Um, I liked everything you said before, Simeon. But could, you, you know, could we just edit some of this? Simeon's telling Mary, and it's not directed at Joseph, that Jesus is going to draw the extreme response from peoples. Biblically, this is accurate. If there's not an extreme response from the person of Christ, I don't know if we, if we have swallowed what, what this, this, uh, this um, creed is giving. That people will either profess a love for him or they will hate him. There will be no middle of the road between professing a love for Christ and a professing of the love for this world. You will stand in one camp or the other. Revelation says, for those in the middle, he says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Those people immediately wind back up in the camp, the lukewarm camp of the cold. And think about the outcome from accepting or receiving him, the extremes. That you have eternal life or eternal damnation. How many people want to hear that as part of this gospel message? That the balance of eternity hinges upon who we decide the person of Christ to be. Is he man 
Or is he God? And that prophecy about Mary suffering the anguish like no others. I have not carried a child. My wife says that if you lose a child, you get a pass. And you go, what do you mean a pass? A pass in everything. Because there's something so unique and special, exclusive to a woman, that when you carry this child in you, there is something that is truly unique to that person who holds the title mom or mother. And what Simeon is saying here is that, that what's going to happen with this child is going to affect you in a way it can affect no man. You know, it's interesting. I thought a lot about Joseph because you read through his whole ministry, Joseph's not there. And it's interesting here as I started spending time in Scripture, I get God bumps. I don't get goosebumps anymore. I get God bumps because I give him the credit for his appearance in my life. So don't give geese or goose, whatever, credit for the bumps if you're talking about God and he shows up. But, but what's interesting here is that I started thinking, why was it directed not at Joseph as well? And the answer is clear because he's not around for these events. And then I asked, why, if, why God would you not let him be around for these events? Now think this through. If my son goes out and starts running a ministry and he starts getting attacked, whether it's physically or emotionally or socially, what will I do as a father? I'm going to stand up for him. I'm going to feed them some pie. And it's going to be called humble pie to let them know that who my son is, he says he is, and you're going to respect him. You're going to obey him. You're going to acknowledge him. And the problem here is in the message of, of the person of Jesus Christ, he came as a lamb. How many defenses do lambs have from the slaughter? None. So you can't have, as a part of your ministry, somebody who will defend you through the course of your ministry. When Christ went before Pilate, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And it said, Christ, one of the few words said, so it is. But then they started asking him for defenses. And, and what did Christ respond from that time forward? None. Do you think if my son was being accused of a crime that was blasphemous, that I would walk up to Pilate and poke him in the chest and tell him that he's got the wrong guy? Of course. But Christ couldn't have that man present to defend him because his coming was as a defenseless lamb. He didn't want a defense because he didn't need a defense because his purpose was to serve as a sacrificial payment for the penalty of our sin. Interesting when you start picking this stuff apart and you see the, the little words hinge. And there was a prophetess, Anna, really interesting about laying eyes on him to confirm everything that Simeon had just said concerning the Christ. Luke uh, 39 through 40 says this, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, devout people, they returned to Galilee and in their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor that God was upon him. So we pick up this next passage, the second passage of 41 through 52 with Christ going to Jerusalem every year. And that's important. Under the law, uh, as a father, you were required to bring, if you had a boy, you brought him to the Passover. The three feasts that were required, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, they were required to go to Jerusalem um, for men. The school of Hillel, which was a, again, another religious group, held also the Passover to be binding on women as well. So they go up there to that journey. And they get up there, they celebrate, everything is going great. And unbeknownst to them, they leave Ju Jerusalem and whoopsie, they forgot Jesus. Now, if you have one child, this is proof that Jesus had brothers and sisters, by the way. If you have one kid, you don't forget the kid nowhere. 
Lori's starting to laugh. She does, she's probably left Zach somewhere, haven't you? No, don't, don't admit it now. Don't worry. If you, you will in due time because uh, one, one will be distracting you. But let me give you a, a quick illustration of how Mary could have forgotten kids by way of illustration. When you have your first child and the kid spits his pacifier out onto the ground, you know what you do? James and Andrea here, first child. What do you do? You take the pacifier home, you drop it in a pot of boiling water, and you disinfect the thing, right? And then you hand it back. Andrea's nodding. Yes, good. Now, Andrea, I'm going to prophesy the future. Special gift this morning as a Sunday morning teacher from God. With your second child, he spits the pasty out on the ground. You take it. uh, You run it under some water. Not necessarily hot, by the way, and you pop it back in the kid's mouth. Third pacifier hits the ground. You take it out. You pop it in your mouth, swish it around, stick it in the kid's mouth. Fourth pacifier, you brush it off on your pant leg and pop it into the kid's mouth. I can't, sorry, Mary's not here, by the way. But Grace, you got away pretty good. Sorry, Mary. Sorry. That's all I can tell you now. I do not have five kids, but I can speculate as to what I would say. And that would be, kid, get it yourself. That's all I can tell you. So... Just me, all right? Jesus was 12. They don't have birth control these days. How many kids do you think in 12 years a good Hebrew woman would have had by this point? And certainly you would lose a few in the course of the way. She could have had five, six, seven kids easily, all right? So now putting that in context. My sister Katie's here too, by the way, right? Yes, I saw Katie. So my parents had five we go to church one Sunday, and it, the town is like three or four. The church was three or four towns away in Deal, uh, New Jersey. And so we go to church. We come home. And about 15 minutes after that, we get a knock on the door, and there's somebody from church. And they say to my mom, she comes to the door and says, did you forget anything this morning? No. <laughs> no. And then to my mom's tuned-in ear, she hears sobbing. And the person steps aside, and there's my younger sister, Katie, at four or five years of age, sobbing. Not funny as a parent. Um, So it's it's human. Let's cut Mary some slack. All right? That's all I'm going to ask for at this point. Having said that, you obviously, they leave him. We pick up verse 46. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated me so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Scripture. As well, let me keep reading. And, and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? King James, I love it, says, Wist ye not I must be about my father's business? Verse 50 picks up, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, which says a lot, by the way. They're still not getting this on who he was. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in the favor with God and man. Finding Jesus in the temple, I was like, God, what's, what's the closest thing we can get here? And the closest thing I could get to would be as if you left your kid in a foreign town and you came back and you found him at the police station. Probably a good, good illustration there. Don't stone me if not. It would have been horrible to be Jesus' brother. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. For the sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Have your, per- have your parents ever said... Uh, have you ever said to your parents, you want a perfect child, right? Mary got it. 
But imagine being the brother. Oh, yeah, you want me to be like Jesus? Does everything right all the time? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, I don't, I, I'm making a little bit of light here, and I don't have the time to really delve into that. But truthfully, he never did anything wrong. He was without sin. It's interesting his response to his mother. You know, just, just how he chose those words. Historically, the world knows Jesus as a man, but is he really both man and God? Did you know that I must be about my father's house or his business? Is this a statement that indicates man or God? The words of this passage, I love how it concludes, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. These events, nowhere in the other gospels. So this is all we have for basically 30 years of life. King James, I like the last sentence again. It says, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Eliot's commentary, I love the wording he used to summarize this. Here was one more, here was, excuse me, here there was more than guidance, more than strength, a manifest outflowing of divine favor and the moral beauty of the perfect holy childhood. Is this indicative of man or God? So who is Jesus Christ? And the Bible makes it very simple and very clear. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible declares Jesus Christ to be both man and God. So I'm sitting one afternoon with Jerry. And he starts reminiscing again. And and he starts telling me the story that he played hockey for a Canadian Junior Hockey League. And um, the Korean War breaks out and he enlists in the Canadian military. He's a U.S. citizen. All his buddies playing hockey. He, he said that something that, um, what was it called? He, he told me the rum. He said it was a hard lemon rum that was 151 proof that had some bearing on his enlistment. He said, but literally him and like six guys from the hockey team marched down to the office, the recruitment office for the Korean conflict, enlisted He serves 13 months on the Korean Peninsula with 11 months in combat for the Canadian government. I'm like, what's up with this guy? I don't, you know, it's just these bizarre things. So he's talking another story. And he says, I should have been dead years ago. He's got this roughly voice. I know, Jerry, I know. He says, no, 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 I was, I, I was, taken off on a DC-6 out in San Francisco Bay on April 20th in 1953. And we take off and we lose engines, all of them. And we crash in the San Francisco Bay. And he said, as we drop down that, let me give you Wikipedia notes, Western Airlines flight 636, a DC-6B, crashed into the San Francisco Bay due to pilot error. Eight of ten people on board were killed. He said the plane hits the water two times, and the third time the wing caught and they cartwheeled. I'm like, I knew nothing about this. He goes, yeah, I spent six six weeks in the hospital, was blue from head to toe. I hurt for about a year, and then I moved on with life. And so you sit here. You sit here and you hear these stories. You know, I would tend to believe Jerry over the FAA, by the way how he talked about how the plane hit down. He was angry about how they blamed the pilots. 
And, and the point that I make with this is, is that when we spend time, when our lives truly overlap, you know what I see in Jerry? I see the hand of God. I see the power of God. I, I see that, that our days are numbered but not over until the plan of God is fulfilled. You know, he's doing, literally two days when I left the hospital last summer, I knew he would be dead within 24 hours. We have lunch every Friday, by the way. Every Friday. I brought him, it's funny, he's got some other people helping him, and they bring him snacks and they won't bring him Hershey bars. So I brought him a six-pack of Hershey bars this past week. I hide them, Jerry, they'll take them from you. I know they'll take them from you. And he laughs at this. Um, but, but, but knowing the fullness of his life convinces me of the presence and power and majesty of a God's ability to influence and protect and provide. How much more so when we spend time in God's word with the person of Christ? Do you understand now why it's such a big deal? That if we don't spend time in his word the way I spend time with Jerry, I'll never know the fullness of the person of Christ. You know, the Bible is the only book that when you read it, you get to know the author. And the author of this book is the author of all life. The author who was the maker of the heavens and the earth. The author who is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. The author who is the word who, was, who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The author who is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The author who is the light of the world. The author who is the son of God in whom the father is well pleased. The author who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The author who is the head of the body, the church. And from this morning, we know that Jesus is the author of the salvation that God prepared in the presence of all peoples. The author of the light for the revelation of the Gentiles. And the author of the glory for the people of Israel. So will we, when we leave this morning, if you're not one of these people disciplined, will you commit this morning to say, I, I want to know God the way Jonathan knows Jerry. And it's only in that way that we'll know the author. And in knowing the author, we will know him both as man and God. And that makes all the difference. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much. I thank you for people like Jerry that convince me that your hand is upon each individual life here. That for each person here that you have a plan, that, that, that you have hope, uh, that, that you have provision, that you have your way for them. Father, I pray that us, for us as a body, we would be convicted in the need to know you better, to spend time with you, to honor you, um, to spend time in prayer, but but to spend that time as well in your word. We thank you so much that we know you today as we do here and now. In his blessed name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School.
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.